Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. This bonus episode of the podcast is part of the Working Through It series, a seven-part multimedia experience of curated content to help us work through this time of tremendous personal and organisational change. This episode is from part four, but you can see all of the content from the previous parts at culturefirst.com slash working through it. And when you're there, make sure you subscribe to get all of the future parts delivered straight to your inbox. All right, let's get started. Hi, I'm Kelsey Crow, author of the book, There Is No Good Card for This with Emily McDowell. And I am working through it by gardening for the first time. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Hello, and welcome back to the Culture First podcast. Now to start, I hope you're ready for some numbers. So this is episode eight from part four of our Working Through It series. Now this is a special mini-series that we've been doing as part of our Culture First podcast. But this episode's also a bit of a milestone. It's episode 20 that we've put out of the Culture First podcast since we launched back in December of 2019. So a big thank you to everyone who has joined me on this journey so far. To celebrate this, I'd love to hear from you about your favourite episode and how it's helped you. You can let me know by using the hashtag CultureFirstPodcast on any of the social media platforms and tag me at Damon Klotz and at CultureAmp so I can take part in the conversation with you. In part four, we're going to focus on how to face turmoil with emotional intelligence. This uncertainty that we face can lead to fear. And fear can stop us from helping others as well as helping ourselves. So to start, I want you to stop and ask yourself this question. Does fear of not knowing what to say stop you from supporting people who are going through a difficult time? If the answer is yes, then firstly, I want you to know that you're not alone. And secondly, I want you to know that we're going to actually understand why that fear stops us and what we can do about it which is why I'm delighted to welcome my guest for this episode, Dr. Kelsey Crow. Dr. Kelsey is the co-author of the book with, frankly, an incredible title. It's called There Is No Good Card For This. What to do and say when life is scary, awful and unfair to the people you love. This is a raw and vulnerable conversation where I really open up and talk about my own struggles with asking for help. I talk through examples of how I've tried to show up for people who are suffering And we learn about why it's important to understand the importance as well as the difference between grief that comes with a big G and a small G. Now, some of this might sound a bit heavy, but I can also let you know that we actually do a deep dive into some of the hidden messages in the lyrics of the Beatles, and we learn about what John Lennon can teach us about asking for help. But there is so much great content in this conversation, so I'm going to stop talking and we're going to go straight into it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Kelsey Crow. It's, it's the question I ask every single guest, and I don't think I've had someone yet who has had a, um, a daughter or a son um, or, or a child who 
is the exact age that I always use, but I always use the age of 10. So <laughs> my question is, and we can use your daughter as an example. So when Georgia says, mom, what do you do for work? How do you explain it? Damon, can I tell you that that question and my response is something that I use in my talks? So isn't that hey, funny that you're asking that? We are kindred spirits. So, uh, what I told Georgia in my talk and what I tell her is I help friends be there for each other when they're sad. Mm. A 10-year-old does know how to experience sadness, but like, does she come back to you with a story of like, oh, like, how can you help me be there for one of like her friends? She does. She talks a lot. She processes a lot of emotional intelligence questions. When uh, she was, for example, writing and directing this, these little plays with her friends, she was really struggling with keeping them motivated by letting them have control at the same time, trying to get everyone together on the same page and exert her authority as director, uh, and just really trying to figure out that balance. And, uh, I could just, for the most part, validate her struggles. It's eternal, right? So we could sit here and talk about how much we can learn from 10 year olds for an entire episode, right? but <laughs> um, that is not what we're talking about today. In fact, I think I'll just put her on. <laughs> <laughs> Georgia, come here. Um, yeah. So we're going to start with, um, you know, we're talking about emotional intelligence and in particular empathy and how empathy and emotions show up at work. But, you know, before we sort of um, center too much on your book and your research, I'd like to maybe just start and go back to a moment in the workplace where you wish that you'd shown up as a um, support, um, you know, for someone, whether, you know, it was a colleague that you're working with or someone that you just knew, you know, who was going through a tough time, but for whatever reason, you didn't. The impetus for my book, the research behind it, was in fact uh, my not connecting to a colleague who was diagnosed with breast cancer. She um, and I worked together on a number of projects. This was uh, graduate students, and we hadn't seen each other in perhaps a year, but we were close when we did connect. It's sort of that in-between relationship. And we didn't, um, I didn't know whether to reach out and acknowledge that I'd heard about her illness. And I chose not to reach out, and I knew that decision was based on fear and not judgment. And I figured that others also wrestled with the same question. So as a social science researcher, uh, I just researched, uh, developed open-ended survey questions to ask people what worked and what didn't to get them through their difficult time uh, to help me understand what to do for her. Obviously, that research and the culmination of the book came well after <laughs> um, her diagnosis, but that was the impetus. I heard a story that you shared about the fact that when book publishers were sort of looking at the concept, they pushed back initially because the book was too broad. They said, you know, this doesn't help someone who's going through like, you know, cancer or divorce or being laid off. And I thought you, your response was um, incredibly poignant, which was like, you know, if you know someone who's going through suffering, I don't think our immediate reaction is to go read a 200-page book about how to help someone who's going through a very specific example you know, more so we need skills and stories to help us in the moment be there for someone who is going through that suffering. So um, I thought it might be useful to sort of set the the stage for this conversation to talk about some of the ways that people do suffer in the workplace as well as personally that you covered in your research and in the book. Sure, sure. Well, I think, first of all, 
the initial even design of the book, when I had it conceived as something addressing many difficult times, had different chapters for each difficult time. And one of my very valuable readers said, I just feel like you keep repeating yourself. <laughs> uh, because underlying so many difficult times are some fundamental struggles that we have around change in identity, change in sense of belonging and community, sense of shame and vulnerability, financial hardship. And in the workplace, these could be difficult times that we experience in our personal lives with illness, loss, infertility, divorce, depression. But there's so many dynamics that occur within the workplace that also cause moments of suffering. And that can be quite extreme as any partner <laughs> or good friend to somebody who meets someone returning from home, home from work knows. Uh, you don't feel included in certain decisions. You don't feel your input is valued. You don't feel you're being taken seriously, even perhaps for reasons of gender or race or your position in the hierarchy or because you're introverted or any kind of stereotype that you feel that you're falling under. So the notion of how we can be there for others in their times of grief with a capital G like loss, illness, divorce, are amplified versions of the kinds of micro forms of grief that we experience throughout the day. And again, that can happen a lot in the workplace. Uh, somebody's tone in an email can really set us off kilter for even a half day. Um, so I think that's how it spills over. I've never, I've never heard that term yet. As soon as you said it, it just struck with me, like the micro grief moments, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So a lot, even when doing research for this interview, you know, a lot of the things I was looking at was like, you know, major moments of suffering that you need to show up for someone. Um, but there's also like, yeah, these minor moments of grief that we all um, experience. And I feel like in 2020, we're ex you know, there's been so many that we've been experiencing and like some are minor, some are major, but it's... Um, I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we are going through a week without experiencing some form of a minor grief that we need to work through. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, even for maybe it's older employees, not always, who are struggling to learn the tech, right, in the beginning of this. And you thought you were fairly competent at your job and you're being exposed to this technology that really demonstrates tremendous incompetence, as many of my students... <laughs> will attest. And it's, it, it's actually very hard to be so incompetent um, in a setting where you want to demonstrate competence. And you do have, it has an effect on your identity um, and your self-confidence. So it's a, it's a small G, but it's, it's to be recognized both for yourself that you see, wow, I, I, I'm just not feeling at full throttle here because I'm not at full throttle. Uh, and to see that somebody who's going through tech issues might in fact feel self-conscious and incompetent. And so uh, any way that you can demonstrate that I still hear your message, even if you're showing me your knees instead of your face. <laughs> in a way, it's like those micro grief moments that we feel or grief with a small g chip away at the mask or the persona that we have when we show up in the workplace. And that is so true. They reveal that they like each little one makes your mask a little bit more see-through mm, and then that's yeah. when you're sort of like your tension internally rises because you feel like you might be seen for someone who you're not trying to show up as. 
Mm. And it's such a potential equalizer when people who do have those skills can show up and walk you through it mm. uh, and allowing that person to give to the process in that way um, without it just being some offhand task that you're delegating, but rather filling a true need and competence and knowledge in the team. I think uh, I've spoken a lot about this on the podcast, but around just like humanity at work and really showing mm -hmm. up a lot and just doing a lot of human check-ins and kind of just making sure that, um, you know, that people feel okay letting us know which mask they're wearing today or what's showing mm -hmm. up for them or what's pulling them from presence. And there's all these mm -hmm. questions that we can be asking that allows us to turn what I don't want to see happen in the workplace. Also based on some of my experience with mental health work is those small G griefs end up feeling like really big ones for people and they end up becoming That's crippling right. because we don't have the language to talk about them. And I'm hoping that by the end of this episode, people will have the courage to be able to have those conversations. Great. Yeah. So a colleague of mine and the way that we got connected is because a colleague of mine partnered with you for a training workshop mm -hmm. and I wanted to share a, a reflection that she had with me, if that's a, um, a reflection oh, that sure. she shared with me with you. So she told me about this person that she attended with and that if you asked them, they wouldn't identify as a, a feelings sort of person and that by the end of the session, this person had a page full of notes and had not only taken the notes but applied your techniques to an important conversation with a family member. So I wanted to know, like, what is it about your approach to empathy that was able to turn a non-believer, in air quotes, into someone who had not actually learned about it, but had actually applied it? Mm. You know, too, I think, Damon, that most people do believe in empathy or kindness. They know that it works in their life. And so I approach this work not uh, as a way of converting people about the value of empathy and kindness, but more so, how do you do it? Because Many of us can recognize, especially in this kitchen table wisdom, somebody's sick, somebody's grieving. These are obvious uh, calls for empathy, like the kind that I had with my friend, uh, with my colleague. And so, but you still feel inadequate to the task. And so the workshop is extremely practical. It goes into what to say and what not say to say. And those kinds of lists are very, very popular, especially, you know, on the internet. But it also goes into what are your empathy strengths? So if you are not a feelings person and conversations like that proceed, how are you, <laughs> are difficult for you, there are other ways to show up for people that really match who you are. So my whole goal is not to turn people into somebody else or to make managers or colleagues feel that they have to become a therapist. Um, rather, it's about recognizing people's difficulty, acknowledging it, and just that acknowledgement in itself can be a huge source of support and that there are so many ways to acknowledge that. What came across in my research, and I had no idea the value of it until doing this research, is the role of gestures. So... I presumed that most support was talking, which it is. It's, you know, we have all benefited from these extremely wonderful conversations. But when you ask people what got you through a difficult time, they can say things like, sent me an email, sent me a text, sent me a playlist, sent me flowers, wrote me a, a poem, donated to a cause that this person died from. 
um, left a donut on my desk, you know, random gestures that people didn't ask for. And that is very useful for people who shy away from too much deep interpersonal connection. Mm. Now, I do emphasize in the workshop how to have those connections yeah. <laughs> uh, and how to do it in non-threatening ways. But when you're just starting out in this space, there are really valuable opportunities for you to connect. So we spoke um, a little bit around, you know, these conversations and, and showing up, up for people who are suffering, whether it's suffering from a grief of a big G or, or, or a small G. And I wanted to kind of uh, look at the, the, the concept of courage and how that um, impacts this. So, uh, you know, if someone was to ask me, you know, Damon, what do you want to become world-class at one day? I tell them that I want to learn how to hold the space to have conversations that might change someone's life because that's how powerful I think conversations are. But I want to learn from you, like what role does courage play in having conversations that you don't necessarily feel equipped to have about someone suffering? I think it's very courageous when it comes to having powerful conversations that would change somebody's life to recognize how little you can do <laughs> to change somebody's life per se. And so to have humility that what you say very likely um, could have little to no impact and what space you can hold for somebody and let them talk will have the greatest impact. Uh, one woman um, in my research, I just love this quote so much. Her daughter has really, really extreme health conditions. And she said that people think that by listening, they aren't contributing to the conversation when in fact listening is the biggest gift I can have. There are times where I have deeply listened to people as a result of my research in my book, because I, again, was not a feelings person. I did community organizing and social work, very power kind of coalition building um, bent. And uh, I have been told a couple of years later or whenever, like that meant so much to me. <laughs> and I don't even remember really the conversation. And I think it's because I was just being a presence for somebody else. Um, and I have some very simple rules for that. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, in my work, I have like a basic and advanced listening skills and the basic skills for idiots everywhere, which we all are in some capacity, uh, is to stop talking. And that's a really hard one especially in the workplace where we are rewarded for competence and contribution, which we imagine being, being the first with the great idea. So to stop talking and to stop thinking about how you're going to respond, uh, which means taking off our analytical mind and noticing it and just keeping it in check. And then also waiting three seconds of somebody is finished with what they have to say before you respond. I think a lot of people struggle to sit in the silence <laughs> and they feel like they need to feel it straight away. Yeah. And just because the silence is awkward, which it is when you first, I'm recommending to any of the listeners of your podcast, try it, try it, try it, try it. And it will feel awkward at first. And I mean like Mississippi seconds. <laughs> so try it. And, and even though you feel awkward, that awkwardness is not because the silence is bad. It's just that you're not used to it. Mm. 
Yeah, I lived in West Africa for three years. There, the pace of conversation was very different. And there were a lot of interludes of silence. And it was all part of the rhythm of talking. It was nothing unusual. And you're just taking in the moment. Uh, very, very present. I really, really appreciated the learning that I had there, which as a New Yorker was quite quite a turnaround. <laughs> a big change of pace, yeah. And yes, <laughs> the idea of the rhythm being something that like, like make it part of the rhythm, like, like we only fill the space that's because right. we feel like we need to, because that's the rhythm that we've been behaviorally trained to operate on. Yeah. Yeah. When doing a lot of, uh, sort of research and sort of self-reflection on, you know, turning up for people who are, who are suffering and having these conversations, I kind of got caught on two personas or like two situations. And it was around the person asking for help and the person wanting to give the help and that there's like barriers that mm -hmm. stop both. There's the person who's, you know, um, who needs the help, who won't ask for it. And there's a person who knows someone that needs help, but like doesn't know whether they should give it. And like, we get caught in this kind of um, story that we tell ourselves around that we shouldn't ask or that we shouldn't give help. And um, mm -hmm. I got, I got down this beautiful rabbit hole and I uh, found some of the most famous philosophers about the idea of help. And I'm not talking about mm. Brené Brown. I'm not talking about Oprah. Um, I'm talking about John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And in the particular song that I'm thinking about, which someone might have guessed by now, is the song Help. And, you know, one of them, it's one of their most famous ones. And um, a lot of people thought it was just a fast rock song, you know, that goes for about two minutes, 30, and that they were actually asked to make a faster song for commercial reasons as part of the film deal that they did. Um, but, like, reflecting on that song, um, I was looking at some interviews that John Lennon did, and he said this about the song in that it made it made him feel secure to know that he was aware of himself then because it was just me singing help and that I actually meant it. Mm. And the takeaways that I took from that was like subconsciously John Lennon knew that he needed help, but only on reflection did he realize how self-aware he was of that need. And secondly, that not all of us get a chance to express our emotions in the form of making world-class music or express our needs or wants for help as often as we should. And asking for help is very, very, very hard, uh, especially when it comes to competence. And uh, it also sometimes can be layered with questions of stereotyping. So if, for example, you are a person of color, you're black, you're stigmatized in society for needing help with payouts and things. This is something that I'm tracking in a conversation I'm having now with African-American um, lawyers. When you go to a conference or when you are in colleagues and you ask for help, it can feel extra vulnerable. So, and yet people know that to get up in the hierarchy, you have to learn to trade on favors. You can't just always be the one giving help. You also then need to be receiving help and establishes a relationship. And so if you don't ask for help, you can come off even as aloof. Um, so it's, 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 it is something that's hard to do and it can be harder to do for some people. Obviously, men are considered um, in a group that's stereotyped for, for having a hard time asking for help. 
my experience with women is that we do ask for help and we also offer help a lot. <laughs> um, and we are part of support groups that are all about helping each other <laughs> in professionally. Um, but it's very important. And then there might be some more hidden wisdom in this song, or maybe not so hidden. It's quite obvious, actually, in the, in the chorus, uh, uh, John Lennon sings, you know, help me if you can. I do appreciate mm. you being around and help mm. me get my feet back on the ground. And when I just like analyze that, you know, it's around asking for help, but like only if you can, which is an I interesting one. Um, mm -hmm. Appreciating those who are around when we were suffering. So actually thanking them and then trying to get a feeling of stability again. And I guess what's interesting here is that like, you know, like you said, asking for help is really hard. But like even in the lyrics, he's like a little bit apologetic. He's like, but only if you can. Well, I do think that, uh, well, and I know this to be true. Sometimes we are asking the wrong person for help. Mm. Or we are expecting help from somebody who is not in a position to give it. And part of the work I do in my workshops and in the book is letting go of a time when somebody let you down. And you do a bit of an inventory. Was I asking too much of that person? Was I asking for something of them that they couldn't give that wasn't their authentic gift? If you're asking somebody who's highly disorganized to be the punctual on point person to take you to appointments and they arrive late, you may feel deeply disappointed, but you're not asking for what maybe they can do, which is some other gift like cook you something really awesome or be the public relations guru for communicating your difficulty. So noticing what people's strengths are uh, when you ask for help is important. And then when he says, I do appreciate you being around, I wonder, like, have you found in your research that appreciating someone does actually help us either ask for help again or even um, or offer support in the future? Yeah. You know, I start my workshops with um, what are the roadblocks, right, for us giving empathy. And very often they boil down to, once you distill, I don't have time, I don't have bandwidth, I don't know if they want me to pry, comes down to a fear of failure, that we're going to do it wrong. When people are disappointed in our efforts to help, then we are less likely to give to them because we fear disappointing them. So when people have an energy of gratitude for what they receive, you're less afraid of them. You're less afraid of letting them down. You're more willing to try. And that is so important that we trust ourselves and we trust the person that we're giving to. And gratitude then for what you do receive makes you an easier person to give to. I sometimes struggle to like bring others on the journey with me. But what's fascinating is that while I don't ask for a lot of help, um, you know, people might associate me with being very high EQ and I identify as an empath. So my kind of like default reaction is to actually be like sensing suffering from people and wanting mm -hmm. to be a fixer. And mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by, you know, like, and that's a story I tell myself, right? That my persona is don't need help, won't ask for help, but willing to fix. And mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm assuming that's probably not some good characteristics for me to, to carry on with. Well, I won't say they're bad, um, but I will say um, there's two things about being the one that offers the help and doesn't receive the help. Sometimes that motivation to help is about your own self-esteem. 
that you could fix somebody. Uh, maybe even that question you had earlier about, I want to have life-changing, I want to help people have life-changing conversations. This is about your ability to impact somebody else. And people can sometimes sense when somebody's rushing into help because their self-worth is dependent upon it. And they might foist their help. They might fret over the right kind of help to give. And if they are not asking for help, that power dynamic of always being the helper and the helpee just gets reified. And it's a very uncomfortable position for any helpee to be in if they are experiencing your help over and over and over again, and you aren't asking for it. In fact, you know, we all want to be perfect helpers, right? But if you think about who you go to in your time of need, which I recognize you don't, <laughs> but if you were to go to somebody, it's not the person whose life seems totally together, right? Mm. I mean, we don't want to be around perfect people when our life is feeling in shambles. It's extreme. It's excruciating. Uh, talk about that persona, right? Somebody has a very different persona than you. Um, we go to people who actually maybe can relate to your state of vulnerability. So if you aren't one that's asking for help and you're always giving it, people will start to distrust that help. Mm. If it's a repeated pattern over time, many people, they'll get your help. You're not in a deep relationship with them over time, they may not notice that as a pattern. They might be like, wow, he's just such a helpful guy. Thank you. Um, but it could be a pattern in relationships. So if that is um, something that you're struggling with, I would even, and, and you seem motivated to help others, right? That seems to be a mo motivator for you. Practice asking for help as a way to help others trust you. Mm. Yeah, it's that finding that that balance of like if you if you come in with shining armor every single time as like here to help and fix everything, right? And there's no level of vulnerability that says that. Hang on, like, do you ever need help? Like, are you okay? And uh, making sure that we do show up. And I think um, I think you know for a lot of people, authenticity at work and bringing their whole self to work does mean bringing a lot of those vulnerabilities or things that we need help for, which aren't necessarily about our competence, but it's about other areas. And we don't always feel maybe as comfortable sharing the areas that we need help. And um, I've certainly what are what are examples that you're thinking of when you say that? Um, so there was I actually asked one of my colleagues um, recently about you know when was a time that I helped you through suffering. And like, mm -hmm. did I show up in the way that you wanted? And, uh, you know, she went through an example where um, she had a, a trauma uh, with her young child, a newborn. And it was um, a situation that she'd never been in, a situation that I'd never been in, and I didn't know what to do. And um, I, my typical response would be to like talk it out or like hold space and do all that. But I knew that like that just wasn't helping right now. Um, and I was, yeah, I was torn at how to show up for this colleague. And I said, you know, what would I potentially like during this time? And I said, something that feels normal. So I went to the farmer's market, bought a bag of fruit, some vegetables and some flowers and drove over. I didn't even say I was coming over and I just knocked. And if she answered, uh, you know, she'd let me in. If she didn't, I'd just leave it there. And, um, you know, I think the, the timing of, of turning up for people can be really hard. You don't know whether it's the right time. And mm -hmm. I, just, I just turned up and um, it was just the right time for her they were getting ready to head out and she wanted to um 
you know, like go like get out of the house. So I, we dropped the, the, the fruit off, the vegetables off, the flowers, and we went to the park. And then we just like did that for a bit. And, um, you know, for her, she said it was one of the most um, impactful moments of this year in terms of someone helping her through suffering. And I'd never been in that situation, but it was something that has obviously strengthened our work relationship as well. Um, Without you having to name what your suffering was, uh, what was something that someone did for you? when thinking about a time of suffering? I think I had a I had a colleague recently who just like put time on my calendar after something that I shared about a struggle I've had this year, sort of living overseas during a global pandemic and being away from family and um, a lot of the things that I, I valued about my life out here had all kind of changed and all stopped very quickly, um, you know, and um, after sharing some of these things and the decisions that I was struggling with, um, this uh, this person reached out, like put time on my calendar, like didn't necessarily say why, and just said, "Hey, like I was reflecting on what you shared in that meeting recently, and it really it really st- um, stuck with me." And so I just wanted to like call and see if you wanted to have a chat. And um, yeah, it was like it was needed. It was like a lot of things I was trying to unpack. A lot of the decisions that I was running through had like quite big ramifications about kind of, you know, my future decisions and life and stuff. And, um, you know, it was a conversation that maybe I wasn't ready to have with someone or wasn't going to bring up, you know, like, Hey, like, can you help me like deal with this? But I shared a little bit and it it was enough for this person to reach out to me. And the timing of of the call, um, really helped me that week. Yeah. Mm. That's a beautiful story. That's, and it just shows, you know, this is somebody who went past the empathy roadblock of fearing of prying and just reached out. Those are the gestures that we tend to remember are the ones that weren't asked for, the one like you did for your friend. What struck me in my research, so is I had initially presumed that there were appropriate, again, I started this, I'll just say, as a Sagittarius from Brooklyn, this is always my line. <laughs> and I did this because I didn't know what to do or say. Like I was always immobilized when people were in crisis. And so when I started this research, I just presumed that there would be this matrix of, you know, what you can do and the the, and the category of relationship that somebody fell under. So a colleague would do this, a neighbor would do this, somebody from years ago would do this, and it would be kind of this plug and play thing. But in fact, once interviewing people, looking at survey data, the ways that colleagues showed up for each other and the ways that family didn't always show up or friends didn't always show up mm. suggested a lot more fluidity in terms of what people in the workplace can do. So you may even have had like a good friend in your life who wouldn't have thought to ask you, what is this like to be experiencing this pandemic from so far away from home. And this colleague did. And that to me has been such a valuable lesson as we look at the workplace as a place to not only bring our whole self to work, we just are, we are our whole selves at work. Um, And those boundaries that I thought would be a lot more rigid are not so rigid and they don't need to be. so uh, that sounds like a really nice thing that your colleague did. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I think so much of our personal and professional life has been blurred this year. And, yes, you know, yeah. knowing like 
sometimes that colleague will show up better than like like a, a friend who's known you for a long time or they have more awareness about what you're going through. Um, yeah. And I was fascinated, fascinated about, I guess, maybe some of the structural kind of ways that we stop maybe asking for help. And one that I was thinking about was, you know, parents can find it tough to ask their children for help because the paradigm tells us that it should be the other way around, that the parents should be, you know, caring for the child. And it's this potential relationship dynamic that might stop parents reaching out for help. And I'm wondering if there's any parallels with um, during this time of change that we're all going through where leaders maybe are reluctant to ask directly for help from their team, thinking Mm -hmm. that they need to be the one with the answers right now. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely around the conversations about race uh, and equity um, and inclusion Many leaders did not get to be where they are by always giving space to others and having to reckon if you are a white male, especially, but white female, having to reckon with what you don't know in such a public way with your team is very difficult. Again, going back to that fear of being incompetent and at owning up to what you don't know and even what makes you scared. I think uh, one thing that I'm hearing in dialogues among people of color is tell me your story. How did you get from A to B? Because there's some journey there, some vulnerability and not, not white tears kind of thing, but more like, let's not just pretend that you flipped a switch And because that's not a very vulnerable place to be. And it's also not always convincing. (laughs) You can't tell what's optics, what's PR, uh, especially if you just quote Martin Luther King and, you know, like. Yeah, all the um, performative ways people are talking about. All the performative ways. And so I think there needs to be real vulnerability about what you still don't understand. You know, I thought we had an inclusive workplace. I didn't know that people weren't feeling included, not just we strive to be better. But I didn't know, um, and uh, and meaning it. So being in a, point, a position of listening, which of course is great leadership, is to be able to listen. Um, but this one, you know, in my work, I you know, our conversation is about empathy in times of suffering. But really, that's embedded within a framework of empathy intelligence writ large. And in many respects, empathy in times of suffering—that's very overt, like illness, grief, loss. You can't argue really that somebody could use your attention. And the struggle is really around how do I best do that? But you get to more complicated uh, relationships, dynamics about empathy. Those are the ones where you have a bit of an identity threat when somebody needs empathy from you, where there's a bit of a conflict. I thought I was perceived this way. You're telling me I'm perceived that way. And you want my empathy but if you experience identity threat, it's you're just neurologically, it's harder to be empathetic and open. Mm. So there's a escalating demands of empathy that are harder and harder to give. And we have to recognize that just because empathy is feeling hard to give does not mean it is not warranted. Um, and that I could be reacting more from my defenses than I am from a place of knowledge or curiosity. Um, and there's more to break through once you get to that level of 
conflict almost in belief systems, who you thought you were, who others are saying you are. I know a lot of the examples that we've spoken about, um, you know, there's like moments in people's life and whether we're an empath and we can sense it or if they're directly asking us for help and that we're trying to show up, you know, for a family member or for a friend. Um, you know, a lot of them have been one-to-one and someone's going through something. But I think what we've experienced this year is that, you know, we are experiencing collective trauma and collective suffering. So is there... Is, is there a difference in your perspective in what happens to human connection in a time of collective suffering and how, um, especially for those, those, those leaders that you're mentioning, you know, how they're trying to show up for groups of people and hold that space? Well, I'm just so grateful again. I mean, the Internet's just shouting so loudly at leaders that we are in this together and yet we're not experiencing this in the same way. So uh, especially in um, nonprofit driven organizations where, say, your leadership lives in the suburbs of Marin and they say now with, you know, these calls, these protests show just how we have to work harder than ever. But if you're not living in the neighborhood where there's helicopters overhead uh, and uh, anxiety right in your face and in your bones, it's hard to hear a call that you have to do more. Um, so I think being aware of where you're broadcasting from um, when you talk about equity and the time that we're in and the position that you have um, and just acknowledging that. And I think many, many leaders right now are trying to not only show up at the individual level and like hear the stories, but also do the work and do the education that's required for them to actually support people right now and not just sit there and say, like, you know, um, I think one thing that we discussed in the previous episodes um, was around like if if your version of showing up and trying to help someone right now is just saying like I'm willing to listen to your story and like a 100 people do that to one of your black colleagues, like that's not really helping them. It's just making them go through emotional trauma a hundred times in a week. So it's around also like showing up and doing the education and making sure that you're doing some of the work to show up for, for your colleagues. And I think that to me has been, I guess, maybe one of the more uh, important learnings for me this year is to like, don't just try to show up with a container, like show up with some of the uh, you know, with the education and the resources that you've done the work first, because just asking like, are you okay? A hundred times isn't necessarily going to help. Yeah. And I think, you know, like it's the same, there are some definite parallels, right? Between the work around suffering, you know, our personal suffering with loss or illness and suffering around racial trauma, which is there, there's so much out there on the internet to read about your type of cancer or your <laughs> experiences of divorce. And if you plan to actually be a, a stalwart in someone's life, like a real anchor of support, which as a leader you need to be, then you do educate yourself. You don't just ask this person who's going to be asked over and over and over again. They're exhausted already. So you have to take it upon. And you would anyway, if you were presenting on some engineering challenge or presenting on some sort of real estate acquisition, you would do your homework before presenting to the room. And it's the it's, it's same with racial competency and cultural competency. You have to do your homework um, before you enter those conversations. That just shows your true investment. Um, so I, I and and of course looking at policies that make 
life easier. And um, there's so many, I mean, there's just so many ways that places can honor diversity of experiences, um, both of all kinds of grief and all kinds of um, vantage points in the sort of ecosystem. How do we reach out and try to help someone if they're not directly saying, I need help? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always the hardest, right? Uh, and there's folks like you that don't ask for help. <laughs> um, and so somebody may be offering to help and you say, no, I'm fine. And you don't know whether to badger, if you're going to be badgering by asking one more time or if you should let it go. So uh, oftentimes anchoring your questions with things like, well, a very simple one is, how are you doing today? Or how are you doing this morning? And really localizing the um, window of experience to make it easier for someone to respond. Because if you just ask a global, how are you? Or how are you being affected by this? Um, it's It can over, be over either an overwhelming question or seem like a disingenuous question. Um, so people don't respond. So, so helping to people to respond by being very, very specific. Um, and say, for example, somebody's going through infertility struggles in your office and you know that they've been trying to get pregnant for a long time. Um, you could just say, you know, this is where we get, we fear prying and we fear asking. You could say, you don't need to tell me, but, you know, I have been wondering how are, you know, the fertility treatments going and you don't need to tell me, understand you want it if you want to be private about it. And a person may choose to remain private about it and still appreciate that you care. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. often we think if someone doesn't respond with quote unquote authenticity, that they don't appreciate us asking. And that's not often the case. Um, they just don't want to respond to you. <laughs> or in, in that, that moment. moment. Yeah. And, but yeah. like showing that you're willing to have a conversation and that you are having them in your thoughts and that you were willing to ask the question, you know, potentially four days later when they are ready, they know that you're there. And then another way too to do it again with this thing of the gestures, if for example, you know, you're an older manager with more people in your network and somebody else is going through this and you know, a doctor who might owe you a favor and give you a consult or, you know, you could just say, you know, I actually know people in this area. If there's anybody you ever want to talk to, you can offer just to network in that way. Um, that's a very, very powerful thing that people in a position of authority can do and because they can underestimate also the expense of some of these difficult times <laughs> and how hard it is to get, um, consultation and support. So there are ways to show that you care without being invasive, which is very, very, it's a super um, major concern in the workplace. Yeah, that sort of blending together of the professional and the personal life and knowing that, you know, we can show up for both sides if we're willing to have that conversation and, and there's that trust. Um, or, for example, another gesture, say you know somebody lost a brother to certain, you know, leukemia or something, you can ask and you don't necessarily, you're not the type of person to touch base with them every three months about it. 
But a really kind gesture would be to say, hey, you know, Maria, do you mind if I organize a fundraiser in the team um, next month for this organization or is there one that you prefer? And that's a gesture showing that you notice and you care um, without having to learn their interior experience with loss. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's powerful. Um, I'm trying to imagine like potentially there's leaders or managers who are listening to this and that they're now realizing that there's many other ways that they can show up for their, for their colleagues, for their friends, for their family who are suffering and that they're, you know, wanting to really show up and hold space. But I think it's important for us to touch on non-listening styles that mm, might be our, de- fun. I love those. <laughs> our default sort of reactions to like, all right, I'm here. Like, and then you, you do everything that you actually shouldn't be doing. So can you run through some of the non-listening styles that I know me and many others um, are definitely still doing? Yeah. Well, we all have them. So, uh, and we have usually more than one. So I'll start with sharing mine first, <laughs> which is the doomsayer. I was that person that would react alarming, more alarmingly than the person felt about alarming situations. Uh, somebody said, you know, I just got a cancer diagnosis. I would say, I know somebody who died of this disease or, you know, like I was that person. And I truly believed that I was keeping it real and showing that I can be there for the toughest of conversations. Like that was the mindset I was going, uh, go, using, going into it. But in fact, as I know now, having actually myself experienced cancer as well, that people don't want your doomsday stories and they really do need to, to feel some level of optimism. Even pessimists like myself want to actually feel some optimism. <laughs> so uh, that's one. Another one is the eternal optimist who's always seeing the bright side um, to a situation. And you find a lot of those people in California. Um, And the hard part about that uh, go-to response where you might say, well, at least it's not this, or, you know, I know somebody who's doing great with that, is it can diminish the person's feelings of fear and nervousness. Uh, And then put it sort of in the current conversation about BLM, like, we have a black president. When we had President Obama was elected and there were so many black journalists saying, I'm so afraid that people are going to think racism is gone now because at least we have this, at least we have that. And it completely diminished people's concerns. And that's the same with so many things. So the eternal optimist. Uh, Another one is the epidemiologist who asks a lot of fact-finding questions. Uh, They think they're conveying curiosity and interest, but they wind up derailing the conversation to what they want to talk about and also creating a more analytical conversation, uh, which is not often what somebody in their vulnerable moment is looking for. They might go to their therapist for that or whomever, but uh, not to their friend. So there's a few. There's others. but And so when I say my listening rules uh, to stop talking, and stop thinking about how you're going to respond, notice one of those non-listening styles as your kind of response. And in fact, I still do the doomsayer response, unfortunately. I mean, we're all human. And people who know me and my work, I always say, I'm sorry, I'm the doomsayer. Like it gives us a vocabulary (laughs) for um, apologizing, basically, Hmm. and letting the person then kind of say their thing. I think having those 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 labels or those um, kind of 
those pieces of language are so important when you're just like, like, hey, like, just letting you know that, like, my non-listening style is this. And, like, that's just what I'm going to default to. But I'm, I'm aware of it. And it, like, allows them to kind of show up with a little bit more knowledge about how you do. And I think uh, for me, I think I probably fall into the last category of, like, not that I'm I'm in no ways a qualified therapist, but I think I just ask a lot of questions and like try to like really unpack what's happening and like and then like try to work out where the thing might have started for someone and like how do we get back to the root cause and then it like it can become a little bit scientific. And you know, that all of this work is rooted in my first module of my training, which is and and, and it's called empathy and trust. And it's about trusting our innate desires to be good and helpful. And these non-listening styles come from a good place, mm. but they are not experienced in that as a goodness. <laughs> um, so that I think there's a lot of uh, empowerment and confidence uh, that people walk away with in this workshop because it's not shaming at all. It really does believe in everybody's innate capacity to want the best for others. And um, there are just these little missteps that we make that we can kind of unlearn. Um, and so I, I think that that's really important. So when you mentioned that it depersonalizes our responses, it's not because Demon's such a bad person. He's such a bad listener, ba ba ba. He's always talking about himself. Um, it's in this case that you're just really curious and interested and so, and then there's also, you know, later in the sort of sequence series, I talk about these empathy types. There's three different empathy types. Um, and one of them is the very analytical, uh, the discerner. And the discerner is somebody who places a lot of conscientiousness on things, which you did in your preparation for this podcast. Like that's, that's your empathy gift is mm. that you, you strike me as very conscientious and thorough. Um, and then probably also analytical, right? That's, that's a, a common sort of corollary with that. Uh, but sometimes they can be less likely to ask for help, uh, less in, less ebullient, you know, less likely to motivate with emotion and can seem a little more, uh, reserved and aloof. Mm. Is this striking a chord? Uh, if, if, if I was to look at my user manual, people would say that I'm like Eva, like very buttoned up and very serious. And like, it, it's like, I'm delivering like a UN world peace speech, or I'm like a class clown. Who's like the first person to make the joke. Uh huh. Uh huh. I can see both for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's just recognizing that these, you know, we have our empathy types all have their, their attributes that are gifts for other people. Um, and that make them feel seen and that make them feel appreciated, but they can have their dark side. And so the discerner, the dark side is they can make people feel analyzed uh, and at their most extreme judged. Um, so just kind of recognizing all of that. In a, in a previous life uh, as a uh, world traveler, someone who lives overseas, someone who just do a lot of public speaking, I spent a lot of time in airports. Mm -hmm. and, um, but now I haven't left California for six months. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I find F airport bookstores deeply fascinating um and just like what what sort of books are there and like there's a full array of books um you know many are tailored to business leaders who find themselves in a moment of like potential self-doubt 
and they walk、mm-hmm. past the book and they've got this like thing that's happening or this meeting that they just came out of or, or this place that they're flying to to like, you know, go do, you know, business stuff, right? And they see this book and it's a biography or a self help book. And they're like, oh, yes, I need to go learn from X, Y, and Z. And that's going to help me get, you know, through this issue before they board the flight. And I, you know, I'm a bit of a not, not a social scientist in the same way that you are in terms of research, but I just find it fascinating, like seeing what people are picking up in the bookstores. And I am like deeply fascinated about like whether, like, what benefit would society see, you know, from a business perspective and from a societal perspective if those airport bookstores had less self help books and more help others books. Yeah, well, Dame, I mean, you're totally speaking my language. I, I started this work、uh, knowing that I was in a position to be of support to somebody, this colleague, going through a difficult time. And I didn't know how. And also, having been somebody myself in a lot of need at one point in my life and never having asked for help. And when my colleague was going through this, I was in a very like, depressed state of mind. And at that point, all of the sort of self improvement books were called self help books. And it was all about how you can empower yourself. And I was so deep in my well that it was too much <laughs> to ask me to empower myself. And I realized for my friend Heidi, it was too much to ask her to ask me for help. You know, like, why is this burden on her? Why isn't this on our culture that doesn't have more lessons and teachings for us about how to be there for each other? So it was from, you know, I studied community organizing. I did a lot of community building in my work in public policy as well. And it came from that perspective of how can we create a community of care and concern so that individuals who are struggling because life has struggles. Uh, are held instead of having to reach up from their well and just grab onto people. And that's happening now, right? So we can't ask people who've been marginalized forever to tell us how to help and to do our work. We need to figure out, as people of privilege, how can we be there for others?、Um, and I think, you know, how do leaders benefit from this? They benefit from having employees who are present. <laughs> like you asked, you know, what can I do to help you feel present in this conversation? If you're absent because of all of the divergent things that life brings into our minds and hearts,、uh, you're not at full throttle. And、um, why wouldn't leaders who are responsible for eight to 10 hours of a person's day want to make that as quality a time as possible? And people aren't looking to just party at work all day. Most people want to make meaning out of their work. So, it's up to the leader to figure out how to generate that meaning. And、um, it's definitely not through timesheets alone. <laughs> yeah.、Um, and through excluding people's、um, needs to be seen and valued. I think that's why it's one of my favorite questions now is like, what's pulling you from presence? Because it's an acknowledgement that there's more than just the work,、mm. it's an acknowledgement that. There might be something else going on, and it's an opportunity and an invitation to someone to actually name something that is not about the meeting that they're in or about the project that they're working on or anything about their competency. And it might be 
you know, m- maybe it is something else that's pulling you from work or it might be a previous interaction you had with a colleague or it might be mm-hmm. a feeling you're sitting with after a company all hands where you're feeling uncertain about something, you know, due to economic environment or the pandemic environment. There's so many things pulling us from presence right now. But um, acknowledgement and an invitation in one simple question, for me, that's, yeah, one of the most powerful questions that I have in my toolbox that allows me to show up for others and to let them know that I'm willing to help them if they need it. It's a great, it's a powerful question. I really appreciated it. I feel like we've got some incredible stories and um, some some great advice here. Is there anything that I, I didn't ask um, or anything that you would typically like to share in a format like this um, that would, you know, make this uh, a successful uh, episode for you? Thank you. Um, one thing that's been coming to mind for me Uh, When I talked earlier about the kinds of empathy that's easy to give and then the kind that's a little bit harder to give uh, and thinking about what's happening um, as a society, our consciousness raising, rightfully so, we are experiencing a lot of empathy and grief for the individuals and the families uh, and the communities that have been impacted by uh, these black men and women who've been killed by the police. These are very, very obvious victims Um, who deserve our empathy and the logic behind that can be evident. Um, But there are also other victims, and I would say, who have received less attention. And these are activists uh, who've worked in the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Five of them between 2016 and 18 have died either through suicide, homicide, or heart attack, early deaths. Um, And we have not talked about their deaths, Uh, Ashley Yates, Erica Garner. Um, And I think in some respect, it's because they were agitators. And it is harder to feel love for agitators um, until we have some 30 years of retrospection, like in MLK. Um, And so my heart is going to the people who have led this consciousness raising with great personal sacrifice in income, in mental health, no doubt in community, because they are working 24-7. And um, I just want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that corporations, as they look at their DEI practices, are benefiting tremendously from this consciousness raising labor. They are gaining access. If if we truly evolve and we truly figure out ways to be inclusive, they are gaining access to evolution, progress, ideas because of this movement. And people have died so that they can have this. And however companies can compensate not just trainers and consultants, but thought leaders and activists who never intended to monetize this work and who actually, whose absence of intention has meant they often don't monetize from this work. Um, How can they find those people and compensate them in whatever way that may be?
big thank you to Dr. Kelsey Crow for speaking with me. I'm not sure about you, but that felt like a masterclass in knowing how to show up for each other, as well as being reminded about the importance of how to be a generous listener, why we should stop overthinking and letting fear get in the way from us having important conversations, and the power of gestures, and not letting timing be the thing that stops us from really showing up for people. I know I learned a lot from that, uh, my conversation with Kelsey, and there was certainly a lot there to unpack. So I would love to learn what really resonated with you. So feel free to start that conversation with me um, at Damon Klotz, as well as at Culture Ramp using the hashtag Culture First Podcast, as well as the hashtag Working Through It. So this wraps up part four from our Working Through It series, and we're going to be back with some more episodes very soon. But thanks again for listening. <laughs>